podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Nicolette Rubinstein gives career moms the practical tools to approach their work and life through the lens of strategy and business decision-making, rather than emotion and guilt. Learn why flexibility is nirvana for career moms, how to get a part-time position, getting on the same page as your partner, curating your childcare jigsaw, the importance of outsourcing, and how to have a good relationship with your boss. Valeria Tellez interviews Nicolette, the author of Not Guilty. Nicolette is a non-executive director in the wealth management industry, with board positions in a number of leading companies including UniSuper, Zurich Australia Limited, Class Limited, CBHS Health Fund, and SuperEd. She was president of the Actuaries Institute in 2019 and was previously a director of ASFA for eight years. Prior to her board career, Nicolette held three general manager roles at CBA slash Colonial First State, spanning 14 years, as well as senior positions at BT Funds Management and Towers Perrin prior to that. Nicolette is a qualified actuary, holds an executive MBA from the AGSM, and is a graduate of AICD. Meet Nicolette at NicoletteRubenstein.com. Here is the interview with Nicolette Rubenstein. In your own words, who is Nicolette Rubenstein? Ah, great question. Well, I am a passionate advocate for women and career flexibility. I'm also passionate about uh, climate change and uh, nature, the ocean. Um, so I was uh, raised actually in the northeast of England, Yorkshire, uh, lived 10 years in South Africa and have spent, uh, gosh, the last 25 years in Australia. So the other thing is I very much consider myself uh, a global citizen. I, if you ask me what nationality <laughs> I am, I, I can't really answer that question. Right. Wow. That sounds wonderful to me. Those experiences of knowing what is to be different, different environments. Yeah, that leads us to, I guess, I would say acceptance and tolerance. So I have these warm-up questions here before we begin to talk about some of the topics in your book, Not Guilty. The first one for you had to be this one. What does it mean to be a mother? I think that being a mother has been uh, the the best experience of my life, actually. It is the thing that I treasure the most. Um, I absolutely love being a mother and I consider it my 
you know, number one role in life and in many ways purpose in life. And one of the topics in your book that caught my attention is that when you connected this being a mother with the emotional state we call guilt, for some reason surprised me that mothers, they feel guilty in so many ways. Would you like to talk to me for a moment about why is that? Uh, Yes. You know, where does that guilt come from? I think it comes from trying to do the two roles, uh, the the role of career and the role of mother. And sometimes you feel that you're not doing either well. My, My personal view is that you end up often giving more on the work front and it's often the children uh, that suffer. So in some ways, I've felt more guilt personally in my career um, on the personal side than I have. uh, uh, So, you know, towards not spending enough time with my children than I have towards not giving enough at work. Uh, It's it's quite interesting how that um, those priorities often play out. Dynamics. I will be exploring this topic a little bit more in the moment. Before that, let me ask you some other basic or open questions. The happiness. What is happiness to you, Nicolette? Yeah, that, it's a good question, and I've you know I've actually been reading a lot on happiness, and and I feel like my views on happiness have changed uh, quite significantly. I. I think, and just in the last sort of 10, 15 years, as I've got older, I feel like I went on to, um, you know, the kind of standard recipe of of happiness as you leave school, you know, go to university or study, um, you know, get a job uh, and you, you know, you go on this sort of mouse wheel of, um, you know, getting promoted, buying a house, you know, very, very materialistic and superficial. And I think it was my mid-30s when before I realized that that possibly wasn't the recipe for happiness. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I do believe that, I mean, I think I'm very influenced by that Harvard longitudinal study on happiness, that there's a great TED talk by Robert Waldinger on it, uh, which is really that happiness is about relationships and that we get so much of our, our happiness from relationships. And I, I think that brings us, you know, back to your children, your partner, your friends, um, and you've got to treasure those things. And to the extent as a career mum that we uh, end up spending endless hours at work and not, you know, not spending time with our family and our friends, that, you know, it actually, it does detract from that happiness. That is something to reflect upon I noticed that you also mentioned in your book something interesting that relates to um, living life with uh, purpose or with deeper understanding. And you mentioned this author, I think her name is Brownie Aware. Brene Brown. Yes. Yes. Not Brene Brown. Another one that wrote a book about the top regrets of the dying. Yes, yes, yes. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Brownie Ware, I think her name is. But you mentioned that in your book, and that kind of leads back to this idea of what happiness is and what is important in life, that we often forget about it or are misled most of the time, I guess. Yeah, that's a great perspective because she does, you know, she talks to people uh, about what their regrets are. And 
you know, it, it is the one that we've been told of so much. No one regrets that they didn't spend more time at work or right. um, that sort of thing. So, you know, it is very good to to tune into that, to, you know, fast forward to your eulogy or, uh, you know, what you might think about your life have, uh, looking back on it. And, you know, that's the other thing that sometimes we get frustrated when our children are young. Um, you know, it can seem like hard work, but you know, you, you look at older people and they often look back at um, those those years as the happiest years of their life. And it, it's such a good reminder to really treasure those moments. Going back to that top five regrets of the dying, I love reflecting on the end. I think that's what she was trying to do with her work too. begin with the end and then we can understand what life might be about if there is a, such a thing as a grand purpose for this human experience. And speaking of that, I'll ask you the question, what do you think is the purpose of the human experience? I think uh, that's quite a profound question. But I think we each have our own personal purpose. And, you know, for me, mine is around feminine strength and kindness. I, I think that's what I would label it. That the purpose of the human experience, I think I'm still figuring out, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, I think, uh, you know, if, if we live our life with, with kindness, that uh, that will, uh, that's, that's going to be a good way, regardless of if there's a God, if there's not a God, if there is, if we're all in some virtual ex reality experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's interesting, you know, just coming back to my perspective on this, I've spent a lot of my career in strategy. So, you know, I, I do like to think about strategy as it applies to your life. And, you know, it comes to your question around, you know, purpose. But, you know, you've got, you've got to start with what your, if you're an organization, you start with what your purpose is and, and you uh, sit down and you work out what your priorities are for the year and, you know, your strategy and how you're going to compete And I, I do like to apply the same principles in my own life, actually. And I do, I sit down every year and I um, think, think these things through and, and think about what the year is about and what I want to focus on. Uh, so, I, yeah, I like the uh, line of your question. The follow-up question on purpose is, how do we know when we have found our purpose, our unique gifts? Uh, I think that is a feeling inside, actually. You know, I think we've all had jobs or roles in life where we feel stressed and we've, we're not happy or, you know, e even if it's just a small feeling of, you know, not being happy doing it or it being a chore. And I think, you know, when you start to find your purpose that, you know, you kind of relax into life and you, you know, you enjoy what you're doing every, every moment uh, of the day. Uh, so I think it's a feeling actually. Yeah, it's a feeling of um, also inner peace. I guess I connect that idea, that concept of inner peace and joy. And then as a sign that we are on the right path. Yeah, well, that, that, that's what I think we're all aiming for, that feeling of inner peace. And just to give you a tangible um, example with that. So I, I actually was um, had executive roles, quite senior roles for, for uh, a long time. And you know, which involved managing people. And, you know, I, I enjoyed a lot of it, but I, 
looked back and I realized I actually found it quite stressful as well. And I think about that because I think, um, you know, I, I cared a lot about the individuals and, you know, each issue that would arise each day, um, you know, I, I felt, uh, you know, it was sort of struck me hard effectively. Um, and then more recently, about five years ago, I left um, the big organization and I started a career as a non-executive director. And I I feel like it's just so much more aligned to my skill set and, you know, where I feel comfortable it's, uh, it doesn't involve managing people and it's, uh, it sort of plays to my skills around strategy and um, my finance background and also plays to my sort of interpersonal and influencing skills, you know, much more so. So, you know, I do feel like that sort of gives you that sense of inner peace and, and contentment, really. Yeah, that's another word I love using, contentment, which um, connects back to satisfaction. It makes us live the moment with um, perhaps the word might be gratitude, just being grateful for what we have. I guess a word that we'll be talking about in a moment, exploring more, is balance. So I'll ask you a general question. What is another word for balance? <laughs> Another word for balance. Uh, <laughs> well, you might say it's inner peace, actually, because I think when you've got that balance, you you do feel like you've got that feeling inside you. But I'm not sure if there is a great, you know, you think about work-life balance, about, I mean, I think about flexible working. I, f- I feel like there's a little bit about having it all or, you know, having your cake and eating it Um uh, as well. But, you know, ba- it's a very personal thing. Balance to one person is not the same as balance to another. You know, balance to one person might be, you know, working 12 hours a day on the, the thing that they uh, love doing and, and not doing anything else. So <laughs> I think we, we, we can't be judgmental about it either. Or create these uh, fixed ideas of what something is. I agree. Another word that I love playing, exploring more the idea and concept is freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Nicolette? What is to be free? Uh, The thing that springs to mind most is the freedom to be yourself. And um, as women, that's been an interesting journey, I think, in the era that we are living in. Um, because I, I do think when you are free to be yourself, you do have that sense of inner peace when, you, when you're not pretending to be uh, somebody that you're not. And again, to try and sort of give a more specific example, um, you know, I, I, I actually, my first job was at an insurance company uh, in South Africa um, uh, in 1992. Uh, and it was in a sort of very male-dominated environment. I mean, interestingly, great guys. So no, but, but I, you know, I think there was only three women in, in the whole department at the time. And, you know, I realized that I automatically took on sort of more male traits than I, without thinking, by the way, but I subconsciously thought that that's what I needed to do to get ahead. Um, and I, you know, and so what might that have been? That was things like probably being more assertive than I would normally have been, naturally have been. It might have been not showing any kind of compassionate side, um, you know. So, so 
quite subtle, actually. Um, I, you know, I think of it from a LGBTQI point of view and, you know, not being able to be yourself in the workplace, maybe uh, keeping things secret um, in terms of your relationships. So, yeah, so freedom for me is is having, um, is that ability to be yourself. I wonder if this is changing now, if women are feeling more comfortable in being themselves and exposing the feminine side instead of trying to act or behave more like men in order to succeed. Yeah, I think that is true. Um, certainly I see it a lot and I, I, I feel it in my own, you know, kind of how I show up in the workplace that I feel much more free to be myself. And now I'm a company director and, you know, there's been a big um, focus on diversity in boardrooms, not not just gender diversity, but uh, cultural diversity. And, you know, I've experienced over the last couple of decades that change towards you know, having more women in management roles and having more women around the board table. You know, I've definitely witnessed how having two or more women helps the decision making and helps the women uh, be themselves as well. So uh, that, you know, and, and that might be acts of compassion. It it, it often is sort of a, a lower ego approach to decision making it, it sort of, you know, can tone down some of the testosterone in the room. So I, I'm one of the things I'm really excited about actually is women being able to embrace their femininity in the workplace. And I, I do see that. I see much more sort of what I would call feminine leaders being successful. You know, if you think about the lead, the female leaders of 20 years ago. Um, sort of maybe Margaret Thatcher might be a, a good example, but uh, you know that they had to compete in a man's world and and had sort of in many many ways more more male characteristics. Whereas you know now I look around the world and I, I mean maybe Jacinda Ardern actually the um, New Zealand Prime Minister is a mm, great example yeah. of you know a woman who's embraced her femininity and you know, is, is running the country in that, in that mold. Yeah. Speaking of what's happening this year, changing the subject really uh, a bit, COVID-19 and working from home, most of us are doing that. What is your vision for the future? Yeah, I think it's been a bit of a gift to us because it's proved that flexible working and working from home can work. Listen, I, I see both sides of it. So it is a gift from the, particularly for men and women who have uh, children and, uh, you know, want, want to spend more time with them. I, I also see the business and the work perspective, which is we do need to physically be together um, at times and quite a lot for many workplaces to function properly. But I think, um, you know, now we've got the technology and the capability uh, to do this. And, you know, my vision for the future is that many people will be able to spend one or two days working from home uh, in future. Uh, I think once we back, get back to the sort of new norm, if you like, that, that's what we will see happen. You see companies becoming more flexible. So people, especially women, mothers can work from home. I love that idea. If that 
is happening already. Interestingly, the the stepped change there has actually been to do with trust. I think when I speak to people, a lot of people, a lot of managers did not trust their employees to be productive working from home. And I think, you know, yes, technology has played a part and, uh, you know, yes, you know, having processes and um, things, but the biggest thing has been trust. I think uh, managers now know that, that their employees are actually happier and as productive, if not more productive, uh, working from home. And as I say, I don't think there's any case for exclusively working from home for most roles. Some jobs can be done exclusively working from home, but you know, to the extent that you're part of a team, you do need to physically be in the workplace um, and you know, to get that interaction. Do you feel that this is something that is actually true? This idea, if we are happier, then we will produce more, we'll become more productive. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's very different, the situation in the US from the situation in Australia, because, you know, we're, we've pretty much got no cases of COVID at the moment. Um, so, you know, we've kind of separated ourselves off as an island from the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that the, the that what what's happened has instilled uh, that trust in uh, people, and we've we've kind of got on now as as business as usual, and people are returning to work, um, and sort of uh, you know that sense of normality is is definitely returning. The new normal, yeah, as you mentioned earlier. What is your idea of spirituality? What is to be spiritual? So, as I said, I'm probably still figuring it out, but mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I'm very conscious that my views have changed even in the last ten years. But I, the view that I subscribe to the most <laughs> would be that we are, you know, part of a uh, global or, or all pervasive uh, energy source, and so I, you know, I don't. Um, believe in a sort of all-powerful God. I, probably the religion that I'm most drawn to uh, would be uh, Buddhism. But uh, I, I, I'm also very conscious that there's a lot that we don't understand about the world. And I'm very comfortable in the state of not uh, understanding. What a beautiful message for all of us. So how did you become a writer, Nicolette? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a very funny question because I don't consider myself a writer. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm an actuary by background. I'm very much a numbers person um, and I actually do not like writing at all. <laughs> oh, wow. um, so, you know, the fact that I came to write a book was very much driven by how passionate and strongly I feel about the subject matter um, because it's definitely not my natural state of yeah. writing. <laughs> um, and, you know, I I was of the generation where, you know, you set out, you know, you kind of go to school, there's equality, male-female equality, the world's your oyster, equal opportunity, off you go. And that was all great. And I, you know, all worked fantastically. And then I started having children and I thought, oh my goodness, this, <laughs> this does not work. 
um, this is hard. <laughs> Nobody has told me anything about how to do this. Yeah, that was the motivation for writing the book. And there was a few things that happened in my life that I feel like were actually kind of lucky that made things work for me. And I that's sort of what I really started to write about. And, you know, one of the ones that was a more conscious decision was flexible working, but there was a few things, other things in my life that lined up that, that just made it all work. And I, I I thought I had something to communicate in that. So let's talk about flexible working. I know we hear about work and life balance. That's another way of saying, it might be, I'll ask you the questions, but what is your experience? Talk to me about your own experience with flexible working? Yeah, so I um, I was 33 when I had my first child. I knew I wanted to work part-time and I, I was doing a general manager of strategy role at Australia's biggest bank uh, and I work in the wealth management division. And, you know, given that this was now 17 years ago, <laughs> um, I, at the time, fully expected to have to give up my general manager role in order to work part-time. Uh, so I was very surprised that at the time that my boss, the CEO, agreed to me um, keeping my general manager role and working part-time. And I then, I did a bit of a different model from the normal in that I came in every day uh, and I... Um, worked seven in the morning till one o'clock uh, every day. So the whole idea was to have uh, half a day at work, half a day with my new baby girl. Uh, and I, you know, that, that arrangement worked, you know, part, mostly for me personally, because that meant that I got to see her and spend quality time with her every day rather than have some days when I didn't much get to see her at all. But interestingly, it also worked from a work point of view as well, because, um, uh, you know, it meant that I was there every day if anything urgent came up. And I, I didn't get treated as part-time either. You know, people who work part-time will often say they don't get invited to meetings or um, copied in on emails, that sort of thing. So I, I didn't get treated as part-time. And I did that arrangement for about eight years. So quite a long time. And it was it worked really well. And then I, I got offered a, a bigger general manager role involving a, a large sort of $40 million project um, that had, at, at most, it had about 150 people working on the project. And so during that time, that was for about four years, and I transitioned into what I called flexible working, where I was working the 40, more than 40 hours a week, um, and I was trying to pick up the kids from school three days a week. And then I would catch up on the work in the evenings uh, and on the weekends. Um, and then I, I, as I said, I left uh, the bank about five years ago to start a career as a non-executive director. And I've still been working flexibly. And ironically, this has been the easiest um, way to work uh, flexibly because the only days that I have to do a full day would be when I have board meetings. And the other days I can generally do uh, school hours. And, um, you know, you can take on as many or as few directorships to sort of uh, balance that workload. You know, so, so if I look back and I think about what's worked and what hasn't worked in, flex, in those sort of three different models, the current model works well and the, the seven till one worked well. 
the, the what I called flexible working with the 40 hours a week, that was the most challenging. And I, at the time, I was really grateful. It had an awesome job and I was loving it. But I don't think I could have kept that up for longer than the 40, uh, so the four years that I did that for. It was, you know, I felt like I was working seven days a week uh, because I was working seven days a week. Right. And it, it was very full on. Would you say that it takes both that balance, another kind of balance between what your needs are and the company's needs? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the insights that I've had, you know, when I first went part-time, there was no such thing as flexible work policies at work. Uh, they didn't exist. Now in Australia, more than 70% of uh, sort of medium or larger companies have a flexible work policy. So it's more understood and accepted. But one of my big insights has actually been that the um, it's your relationship with your boss that's the biggest determinant of whether you can um, structure these flexible work arrangements uh, to suit you. Because, you know, there's, there's some, you know, great companies who have these policies and, you know, might have management support or board support. But your own individual boss can very much make the difference between whether that's going to be an option for you or not. And I think the benefits to the individual are probably quite clear, um, you know, in terms of being able to spend more time with your, your family. But I'm also very passionate about what the benefits to the organization are as well. And even my own case study kind of proves that out, that I ended up spent, uh, staying with the organization for 14 years. And, you know, so just in terms of retention, and we know the huge amount of uh, business cost associated with turnover of staff, um, uh, you know, recruitment costs, training costs. Uh, so that, that uh, retention is really important. But the other one is just um, uh, happier employees. So, um, higher employee engagement scores. And, you know, what we've seen in Australia, interestingly, um, I've, I've seen this in a few, quite a few companies, that the employee engagement scores have gone up over COVID uh, when people have been working from home. And, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have expected that, but it's, uh, that, that has actually been the case. Talk to me for a moment about the differences, if you see any difference between a female career path and male career path. Are they significantly different or not, really? <laughs> uh, you know, I'll talk about it personally and then talk about it generally. But effectively, what's happened with my career path is that when I went part-time my career effectively did go sideways uh, for probably 10 uh, or more years. Um, you know, and I had three children um, and so, and was very happy with those kind of trade-offs, if you like, <laughs> uh, coming back to my strategy background. Um, but then, you know, I, I effectively, as the children got a bit older, kind of went back onto the career sort of trajectory um, so, but the question of whether that's a male or a female path, um, you know, if I think about the ideal model, it's the same for both men and women, and we should, you know, to the extent possible, play an equal role in uh, childcare. 
And, you know, to me, the most ideal model would actually be if we both work uh, part-time or flexibly. Um, And, you know, let's just say the equivalent of about four days a week. If you work four days a week, then um, it means that your children are only in three days of care, which I think is important. That means that they get more parent care a week being four days than they are in somebody else's care. Um, I think in four days, you can generally do a job. Um, You might not be able to do enough of a job to get promoted, but (laughs) I think you can generally uh, do a job. Uh, So, yeah, I I think that, you know, if I fast forward a couple of decades, I'd love to see it where the male and female career paths aren't different, but but there were that we're also comfortable putting our careers on hold um, so that we can dedicate time to, uh, you know, spending time with children. We're almost at the end, but I do have a different section from your book that caught my attention. That's where you talk about the chapter about embrace change and you talk about perfectionism. So you say give up on perfectionism which is a very important message for all of us. Talk to me for a moment about that, Nicolette. Yeah, I think that's been a realization for me and I think a lot of women that uh, part of our career success has come off the back of perfectionism. Uh, and But it's not a quality that's conducive to work-life balance or you know, any kind of inner peace either, I think, by the way. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and how does that manifest itself in a, um, you know, as a career mum? Uh, I'll just give you some examples. But, um, you know, for me, one of the big issues was when I was doing that seven in the morning till one o'clock and I might be, you know, putting together a presentation or a paper and I would have to leave that in somebody else's hands at one o'clock to finish off. And, Um, You know, that would kill me because if there were any typos or, you know, even formatting errors, it used to kind of (laughs) just get under my skin. (laughs) Um, And and then so that's sort of an example in the workplace. But an example at home as well is, you know, as soon as you have children, you know, having any kind of home that uh, is neat and tidy um, and, you know, people can arrive at any time and it looks spotless, you know, that's all got to go out the window as well. (laughs) So you know, perfection is very much the enemy of work-life balance and inner peace, I think. And, you know, I think it's really good for women to recognize if they are perfectionists and recognize that they might have to work on that a bit. The question I have for you too, how do we learn to become less of a perfectionist? Would you say meditation or therapy even? (laughs) Um, I think meditation is the answer to everything. So (laughs) I think, yes. Um, You know, I think, uh, what is that saying? Perfectionism is the enemy of, I can't even remember what the saying is, but I I think you've just got to realize that 90% is good enough and and just get on with it. Uh, And, you know, the, the... when I think about life of a, as a career mum, there's just all these balls in the air and you've just got to realise that 
you know, dropping some of them at times is okay and life goes on. <laughs> so, you know, how do you learn it? I hate to say it, but I think you learn it through the school of hard knocks <laughs> more than anything else. <laughs> and just stuffing up and realizing that life goes on and it's okay. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? Yeah, I... I Success to me, funnily enough, is where we started, is that feeling of inner peace. You know, I I do think about my purpose and this feminine strength and kindness. And to the extent that I'm sort of living and achieving that, you know, that that's that's success for me. But, you know, I do I I come back to it. It's a feeling success is this feeling of, of inner peace and contentment. I did want to ask you another question too before, but I guess I'll ask now. Do you believe in unconditional self-love? <laughs> um, gosh, do I believe in it? I absolutely believe in it. Am I very good at implementing it? Probably not so good. <laughs> I'm very happy at preaching it, but I, uh, you know, I've, I've got better at it over the years and I, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in in self-care and that, our children will be happiest um, when we are happy in ourselves. I, I really believe that. And that does mean, you know, dedicating time to yourself and not feeling guilty about it. Either. Yeah. yeah. Why do we feel guilty doing the things that we must do in a way? What does it come from, this shame and guilt? What would you say? I do think it is upbringing and I think it's cultural. Right. And, you know, there's a great TED talk again um, about Rashmi. She talks about how we teach our girls to be perfectionists and not brave. And, you know, I think think it comes from, uh, you know, girls often are raised, and I see myself even doing it with my own girls. So this is not about somebody else doing the wrong thing, that, you know, we, we teach them to, you know, very specific behaviors from an early age. And, you know, how does that play out? It means that when they get to the stage of, you know, working career and having their own children, we we still have this um, belief that our job is cleaning, our job is raising children, our job is cooking. And then on top of all of that, we add, and you're supposed to, because it's the new age, also have a, you know, high-performing career on top of all of that. And we just, we believe that we're supposed to do everything. And then you feel guilty when, you, when you're when you not mm. doing components of it. Right. That's wonderful to know that you are aware of this from experience and not passing this on to your children, which might be a challenge. It's a challenge, right, Nicolette? To let go of telling kids what to do and how to do, uh, how to live their lives. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, and I feel like I, I mean, I catch myself all the time m- making these mistakes with, with my own children as mm-hmm. well. It, it's so ingrained in us. Um, it, you know, it's hard. You know, hopefully I do catch myself. But, you know, if you ask my kids, they're probably, they're, <laughs> I'll give you a very honest answer about all of the ways that I, you know, mm-hmm. that, that our expectations just translate uh, onto them subconsciously. I don't believe we can love others if we don't love ourselves. So it always starts here. Yes, I, I fundamentally believe that too. But I I think that act of doing it is challenging. Yeah. 
So three more questions for you. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? I, I think the thing that I've wrestled with the most is confidence, actually. Um, and, you know, if I ask myself, what would I tell my, you know, 17-year-old self? Um, it would be that, you know, you're great and you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I feel like I had that self-doubt, inner critic, um, you know, it's been a constant companion my whole life. And, and I've, you know, I've now read a lot about confidence and women particularly and confidence. And it's quite an interesting and profound thing that we don't realize um, that, you know, men are naturally more confident in a lot of cases. Um, there's a great book about this actually called The Confident Code confidence code. Um, And, you know, one of the reasons for it is just testosterone, that men have, you know, more uh, testosterone than women, and that often uh, gives them more confidence. And the other interesting thing is that it changes with age, that um, when we're young, men are more confident than women, but by your 40s, it starts to even out. In 50s and 60s, women actually become slightly more confident than men. So it's a fascinating phenomenon that I feel like we should be told or taught about much earlier. And I look back to the specific instances in my life of lacking confidence. And the ones that stand out, one of them was going from school to university. And I'd done quite well academically at school, but I still thought I was an absolute fraud and that I would get discovered at university, you know, when when you really had to think. Um, and I, I just remember that real, you know, that self-doubt at the time. And interestingly, the other times that I really lacked confidence were on my maternity leaves. And, um, you know, it just goes through your mind about do they want me back? Do they need me back? Is somebody doing a better job than I was doing? Uh, And you would think in my case, having had three maternity leaves that I'd gone back successfully twice, that by Mm -hmm. the third, I wouldn't feel like that. But I absolutely did. Uh, You know, it was, it was still a recurring theme. So, you know, that, that's probably, um, you know, when I think about learnings, that, that, that appreciation of, of confidence and, you know, it, it comes back to, in some ways to what you're saying about unconditional love, because it's, you know, to the extent that you're lacking confidence, I'm not sure how much you can unconditionally love yourself either. Hmm. Two more questions for you, Nicolette. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? No, uh, you know, one of my passions uh, is around retirement, aging and longevity coming from my actuarial background a bit. So I fully, I'm aiming to live beyond 100 and I really hope (laughs) I can do that. But at the same time, if I died tomorrow, I would be quite happy. I've I've had a absolutely uh, cherished life. So um, no, I wouldn't do anything differently. What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? <laughs> the, the only thing I know for sure is that we don't know everything and we don't understand everything. <laughs> so um, true. <laughs> that's probably the one thing. The second thing I think, you know, kindness is everything. And um, I think it, it's the most important thing in life. And thirdly, I think, 
that if we strive for inner peace, then that is, um, you know, a, a great goal and aim in life. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your genuine presence, your message, your mission. Thank you, Nicolette. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, you can go to my website, nicoletterubenstein.com. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Valeria. That was amazing question. So quite <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I love your wisdom too. Bye for now, Nicolette. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Nicolette Rubenstein and her work, please visit nicoletterubenstein.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.